what does it mean to regenerate? The reemergence of the concept of regeneration in our culture is a hot topic. From producers to products, legislation to certifications, celebrities to students, there's no shortage of passionate perspectives. Welcome to Regen Circle. I'm Paige Fay, and on this show, we're here to explore the reemergence of regenerative concepts and practices and their impact on ecosystems and culture. If you like what you hear, take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Welcome to the circle. Welcome, Looney. I'm excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for inviting me to tell a story. Looney is the founder of Fledge, which is about an 11-year-old global network of impact accelerators, also the author of Next Step, which is a book series. Um, and in the last three years, he's founded Africa Eats, which grew out of the Fledge network and supports smallholder farmers in Africa to sell their products. And in many cases, you've doubled the income of the farmers you work with. Today, I'm going to speak with Looney about his work in Africa. I want to focus on creating wealth and localized and impoverished ecosystems and communities, and also your philosophy on the evolution of agriculture. So to dive in, um, Africa Eats is an innovative model, and you've seen great success in a place that most people refuse to do anything but philanthropy. Before we dive in more, could you give just an overview of what Africa Eats does, why it's different, and what's unique about your business model that hasn't been attempted before in the African agricultural system? Yeah, so in general, we're an investment holding company, which really doesn't tell you anything except the investment part. Uh, we've mashed up the business model for Africa Eats is a mashup of three pieces. Uh, the recipe, as, as it says on the website, is one cup venture capital. And the piece of venture capital we took, we didn't take the whole model. The piece we took was supporting existing entrepreneurs. So we only invest in Africa Eats. We only invest in homegrown African entrepreneurs. They know the problems best. We own minority stakes in their companies, or it becomes our companies, but they own the majority of those companies. We don't try and take over from them. And that's it. We leave the rest of the venture capital model aside. We then take two cups of business accelerator. So as you said in the intro, I've been building the Fledge network for 11 years, almost 12 now. Um, and uh, we took the best ideas of the business accelerators from the tech world and we applied them to the mission-driven for-profit world. We helped these companies that we brought into Africa get much bigger. Uh, generally, we when we meet them at Fledge, they all came through Fledge to start with, uh, they were ra rather small companies, $30,000, $50,000, $100,000 companies. Biggest might have been two hundred and fifty. Uh, we now have a half a dozen over a million dollars a year. So some of them are 10 or 20 times bigger than when we met them. One of them is 100 times bigger. Uh, it cracked uh, $10 million last year. Uh, and that's our goal is to just keep adding zeros to the, to the revenue size. Uh, but not by burning lots of capital like the venture capitalists do, growing at a reasonable rate, which is generally doubling year over year, or 50% 50, 50 to doubling. That's, that's our goal. Okay, that's two-thirds of the model. I said there's three parts. To that, to the two cups of uh, business accelerator, we added Dash of Berkshire Hathaway. And this is really what makes us completely different from anything else you've seen, anyone else anyone's seen, except maybe Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, we asked the question of how do you invest in Africa into companies where two things are true? One, the entrepreneurs are not interested in just selling their companies quickly, like in the venture world. They're not looking to flip them and make you know, become millionaires and retire. They're looking to actually solve real problems. 
And so if they're not looking to sell, that's a problem for investors. But it gets worse because no one's buying anyway. So even if that wasn't true, even if the entrepreneurs did want to sell their companies, there really isn't a market for acquisitions uh, and mergers for these companies. And as we would say, there's no window open in the IPO world for them to go public. And so they're illiquid and they're going to be illiquid for a long time. So we turned to Warren Buffett and we didn't actually get to talk to him, but we asked the question, what would Warren do given a space where there's no exits? And he would say, well, why would you want exits in the first place? One of Warren's uh, old age advice is if you found a company you like and you bought some of the company, whether it's the whole thing or, or part of it, and you still like it, why would you sell it? Just own it forever. So we have this ethos inside Africa Eats is that we're long-term partners. We're going to own a minority stake of these companies and more for 100 years, 200 years, you know, 500 years, for, for a long time. And that completely changes the way we interact with them, the way we think about investing in them, the way we think about what we can do to help them grow even faster and better. And so a little bit of venture capital, a lot of business accelerator, and a little of advice from Warren Buffett makes us something completely different. What a unique recipe. I'm curious, you know, you talked in other podcasts about, you know, that tech is, you would never invest in tech. You know, how many more tech startups could there possibly be that would that would make money? The space is saturated. So you turn to a space that wasn't saturated, that was Africa. And yet I have a hard time. I don't know that anyone's gone into business in Africa without altruism. So is there is there a recipe? What's your guiding philosophy for your work? And, and how much of it is sort of focused on do good? How much of it has capitalist incentives to make money? How do you personally approach Africa Eats and also your other, your other ventures? It's not that I don't believe there's any more tech to come. I'm, I'm not going to repeat the mistake of 1790 that said all the patents that will ever come are already patented. Um, that was from the patent office. Um, no, no, there'll be more tech companies. The reason I do what I do is because there are far more bigger problems of the world that tech can't solve or can't solve easily. So Africans is a mission-driven company. Our two missions are to lessen hunger and poverty across Africa. And in the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals, that's goals number two and one. And you know, they're not technically in any specific order. It's really hard to argue that uh, hunger and poverty aren't two of the biggest problems of the world. Maybe climate would be equal, but um, you know, in, in Africa, it's, it's hunger and poverty more than climate. Mm. Um, and so how on earth do we do the work that we do to lower hunger and poverty? This one word, it just sounds like this, the answer is too simple. Like, why wouldn't anyone else be doing this? Um, the story goes pretty simply. Most, so there's a, a 1.4 billion people on the continent of Africa. 1.1 billion people living south of the Sahara, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, it's a lot of people, right? That's the size of India and China. Half of them are kids. Half of those people are 19 years or younger. Um, so that leaves us with 550 million adults. Most of those adults are farmers. Some herders in some parts of the continent, but most of them are smallholder farmers. They're subsistence farmers more often than not. And we're, I mean, we're talking like an acre, plus or minus a half an acre, an acre. Um, uh, so they're growing the food that they eat, they're growing the food that they feed those kids. That food, any surplus of that food is their cash income to live. 
And so if you just look at the statistics, right, these are real people, but there's statistics underneath it all. On average, about half of them are living at less than $2 a day. Nobody should live on less than $5 a day, like or $10 a day, let alone two. Uh, so the question comes up, how do you solve a problem that's, that, that's 400, 300, 400 million people? Uh, in a part of the world that's basically the last place anyone ever talks about who's not from Africa. Uh, and this is why I think we think of that as a, phil a, a philanthropic problem, right? So since nothing else is happening around, around the solution, well, it must be left to the philanthropists and the governments to solve. But they've had, you know, 60 years of of post-colonial times to solve these problems and the problems only got bigger. Right? Physically, there are you know, three times more people living on the continent than there were 60 years ago. And so in, in not in percentage terms, but in real terms, there are more poor people now than ever. There are more hungry people now than ever. And so my fundamental um, uh, investment thesis or, or uh, theory of change, as people would call it, uh, is that they're just, phil philanthropists can't solve this problem. Governments can't solve these problems. They are too big. Uh, even if the philanthropists wanted to solve these problems, and some of them do, and some of them put put money in and, and do some good, there just isn't physically enough money. Mm -hmm. The rich people have a lot of money, but they, are, they aren't giving enough away, and they don't have enough to give away to actually solve these problems. It's bigger than Bezos and Gates and, and the Rockefeller money. Right. So we have to turn to the biggest pool of capital there is, which is for-profit capitalism. We right. have to find solutions that make profits while solving poverty and hunger. And that's what the two dozen companies that we're working with at Africa Eats do. Yeah. They, they actually double the income of farmers. They lower post-harvest losses. There's more food. It's better food. Uh, it gets to more plates. And we're, low, we're you know, measurably lowering hunger and poverty. So I want to dive in a little bit more to to the impact on the local food economy and, and the potential long-term impacts of, of what you're doing. And there's sort of this bigger question lingering in my mind that I want to work up to, which is there is there a way to, to solve poverty and hunger in a way that doesn't drastically increase the amount of greenhouse emissions in the short term? So that's, that's a question I'm working up towards that, that I'll plant the seed of. But in the meantime, one thing that, that I want to dive into is... In the communities that you're working in right now, Africa is a net import company, and and you're looking not at cash country. crops. Yeah. This country, thank you. Yeah. Um, and you're looking at not cash crops that are going to be exports. You're looking at local food. You're looking at potatoes. You're looking at onions. You're looking at people things that people eat. As yeah. your model scales and as you create more of this, do you see? Are you focused on creating? Is your theory of change focused on creating more resilient economy within Africa, where they produce their own food, they consume their own food? What is your thought on that? So right now, most countries in Africa are net importers of food, not because they don't grow enough. Most of the countries actually grow enough food to feed their populations or their or neighboring regions. Uh, but about a third of it gets lost on the way to the market. Hmm. Literally lack of infrastructure to get the food off the farms, uh, lack of cold storage, um, mishandling of food. About a third of it goes to waste. And so uh, the countries wind up being net importers. And then on the bigger scale of poverty, the problem is that then they have to pay for food that's grown elsewhere. They're importing soy from, from Brazil. They're importing wheat from the U.S. or from Australia. 
um, they're importing, uh, you know, uh, not fruits, but other other foods from other parts of the world. Um, and so when they do that, they have to do that in dollars. Well, the only country on the continent of Africa that that's based in dollars is Liberia, which doesn't it doesn't have any dollars. It's low on dollars. All these countries are low on dollars. They have to somehow have dollars to go and pay for these imports. Uh, and the only real way they have to do that is to sell them the oil and the minerals that are in the ground, uh, which they've been doing for many years. But in almost all cases, they're actually running deficits. And so they're borrowing the dollars from the global north to to, uh, to fill in these gaps, which is a cycle of debt that just can't com can't uh, can't continue forever. Uh, will run out of uh, runway at some point. Uh, so. Uh, food sovereignty and food self-sufficiency is a core piece. You can't solve poverty in Africa without solving food security. Uh, how you solve food security is, again, not that complicated. You build out the food supply chain so that far less than 30% of the food goes to waste, and then you'll find that there's plenty of food growing on the continent. Uh, and there's plenty more capacity and, and potential yield that can be grown on that ground to feed the population as it grows. And yes, in, in the long run, Africa can be a uh, uh, net exporting region, right? Multiple countries can be net exporters of food. Um, food to the Middle East, food to China, food to India, right? Food, food to places where uh, other parts of the world where they're struggling for food sovereignty as well. And what are the ways in which the companies you're investing in are solving for that 30% food waste? So our biggest company is East Africa Foods. Mm -hmm. uh, it's biggest now. In 2014, when we met them, it was a year old and $100,000 of, of revenue. Uh, I think 50 farmers uh, in year one. 7,000 farmers now. They make most of their money on potatoes, onions, and, um, and bananas. So everyday foods. Uh, what do they do? They have a fleet of 75 trucks. Many of them drive out across the whole country of Tanzania, which is the same, uh, not the same shape, but the same size as California. So big space. Um, so they're driving around every day. They're going some to some region of the country and they're picking up potatoes or onions, bananas, rice, beans, a few other things. Uh, and then they're shipping them back. They're driving them back to the big city, Dar es Salaam or they just opened a second city, Dodoma, which I think is the second or third largest city in the country. And there they sort them and uh, you know, distribute them out with yet more trucks to retailers. So again, uh, in terms of the losses, there's been a study on their actual losses, and they were on the order of like 4%. Hmm. So they dropped the losses by 85, 90%. Hmm. Um, how did they do that? It's simple. They put the food in, you know, in trucks, in plastic bins often so that you're not just stacking the food on top of itself, right. that it's stacked in a, in a plastic bin that's stacked on a plastic bin. The trucks are refrigerated. So you're taking the 80, 85 degree heat out of the, out of the food on its way to the sorting facility. Um, and then you're sorting it and getting out to retailers in, you know, within a day or two, as opposed to a week. Right. So less if it's rotting along the way. Uh, and then the magic happens of capitalism when you have 7,000 farmers and they have a steady income and they know that this company is going to come and pick up their outputs. 
those farmers now have a really good incentive to find ways to grow food, more food and higher quality food because they'll make more money. Mm-hmm. Whereas before East Africa Foods was was around, you know, they would have a small surplus, but so would all their neighbors. And there might be a middleman who is going around trying to buy some surplus, paying as little as he could, uh, taking advantage of them. And so they really didn't have a strong incentive to find a way to grow more food. They just needed to find enough to grow for their family and have a, t- a tiny surplus for, for cash incomes. And what is the limiting factor for a company like Africa Africa Eats? Or sorry, um, Africa Foods. What was the name of your, your number? East one? Africa Foods. So that's our general business model. Most of our companies are doing that. They're, they pick a crop or two. They're buying it from hundreds or thousands of farmers, just not 7,000 yet. And in all cases, you have to, you can't just go tomorrow and say, okay, I'm going to find 20,000 more farmers and buy all their outputs because then you have food rotting in your warehouse, right? So you have to balance the demand and the supply. You can do this at a rate of doubling year over year um, at a steady pace that that's doable. Yeah. We've seen some that have been able to grow a little bit faster than that, uh, but that's a nice, healthy, uh, sustainable pace of growth. And then the things that get in the way, two two major pieces. One is you have to pay the farmers when you pick up their food. They're poor. You can't you can't tell them I'll pay you in a week. Like that's hey, it's just not fair to them. Like you're finding basically if you do that, you're financing your company on the poorest people on the planet. So you have to pay them cash or mobile money or bank bank payment. You know, no no more than the next day after you pick it up. You might have to weigh it and and check it first. And then you get it to your warehouse a day or two later, you sort it, you get it out to the retailers. And if you're selling it to the big restaurants in the, in the supermarkets, they pay you 30 days later. Okay, so you have a 35-ish day left. You, know, you, have, you have a gap between the time you have to pay and the time you get paid. And the bigger you are and the more food you move, the bigger the gap gets. Yeah. And so in the, in the US and in Europe, wouldn't be a big, wouldn't be a big problem. You'd go to the bank, you would go get a line of credit, and voila, you'd be done. Well, the banks in Africa don't do that. They just don't work with small companies. And so as you grow, you hit the first hurdle, which is I just don't have the money to 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 get more customers. And it's solvable by selling to more informal retailers. There's tons of informal retailers, but they're informal. Uh, and so we've seen issues where they'll place an order the day before and you show up to give them the food and they'll go, oh, no, I don't need that anymore. You know, in the U.S., that doesn't happen. There's a contract. There's a purchase order. Right. You ordered, you know, 10 bags of potatoes. Here they are. And you owe us for 10 bags of potatoes. But in in uh, most countries in Africa, when you show up with 10 bags of potatoes, then they say, I don't need it anymore. Well, they're not going to they're not going to pay you for it. Yeah. So now you have 10 bags of potatoes that you have extra that you have to sell the next day. Okay, so that's problem one. Problem two, uh, I'd say, is even bigger, which is physically, um, when Americans see the map of Africa, it doesn't look, you know, we know the shape and all that, and we see all these blocks, you know, there's about 54 countries, and so it looks familiar. It looks like the map of the U.S. with states. And what I've seen over and over again is that we kind of know how big a state is, right? So... You know, the ones in the West are much bigger and blockier. The ones in the East are tiny. And so you see Africa and you figure, okay, they must be about the same size. 
without understanding that you could fit like three United States, three, 348 state United States in Africa, that it's humongous. And so one that looks kind of medium-sized like Tanzania is the size of California. Yeah. Um, and the region of East Africa, which is Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Rwanda, is like the size of Texas. Um, these are humongous countries, and they don't have super highways. Um, so moving this stuff around is hard. Uh, and physically picking up food from thousands of farmers across a whole country takes could take a week. You could send your truck out and it could come back a week later, like full of food. Uh, but uh, the key keyword in there is sending your truck out because there aren't logistics companies that you can just call up and and say, I need I need you to pick up from here, here and here. You won't find in any any country I've been to yet, uh, or I've done business in yet, you can't call up any company and say, I need three trucks to go out to these three places at once. Just they don't have such things. So we have to build those internally. We have to build all our logistics internally, um, which means, okay, that sounds like it's not too much trouble. You just go to the Isuzu truck dealer and uh, or the you know the, the Chinese truck dealer, and you just lease some trucks, right? That's what we would do in the states. Well, there's no truck leasing in Africa, so you can't do that. So you say, okay, no problem. We'll just go to the bank and we'll just get a truck loan. Well, they don't do that either. Right. Um, basically, the only way to get a truck in Africa, if you're a small company, small being less than $10 million, uh, is uh, bring cash. That's your only choice. Yeah. And so where did you get the cash to get the truck? And so if you just do the numbers, which is what I do for a living, right? You just run the numbers and you say, well, how how much am I going to make in profits? Uh, you know, Food is not a high profit business. How much am I going to make in profits? you know, at a $300,000 a year company, let's say, um, it won't be enough to buy one truck. But you're going to need three or four trucks by the time you get to be a million dollar a year company. And you're not going to have the profits to do it. Somebody has to finance that. Mm -hmm. And so that's, again, that's where we come in as uh, as investors. We're financing the trucks and we'll do truck loans. Mm. Like we, we, we don't see why, uh, why the institutions don't do truck loans. Uh, we do truck loans for our company. Sounds like your next business might be a big new bank in Africa. Uh, no, I'm, I'm happy being the investment holding company. I like the model. I like the model. One reason why others won't do this is because they see all the risk associated with lending. Mm. But on our end, we own. We're we're partners in these companies. We own a minority stake in these companies. We've known them for years, and so we know when they need the next truck. Uh, and we'll provide the capital for that, and then we'll monitor the company and know when the next truck is needed, and the next one, and the next one. You take it at the pace of the company's growth, which makes a lot of sense. One other trick and and difference in Africa Eats is that we'll do operational capital loans. We'll do invoice financings. This happens a lot as well. Uh, I'll get an email. Uh, I got a problem. I got an order. It's $100,000. Hmm. And you say, well, how could that be a problem? Well, the problem is that somebody ordered $100,000 worth of stuff. They're going to pay me 45 days from now. I need to go to the farmers and get it. It'll cost me $75,000. I don't have $75,000. That would be called invoice financing or factoring. We'll do that too. We will fill in those gaps as Africa eats, which is how our companies are able to grow so fast. On another podcast, you talked about that most of the farming in Africa is organic, largely because... 
they can't afford the use of pesticides or other other chemical inputs. Um, as these farmers start to make more money, is there any concern that they might start to industrialize their agricultural systems more, that they might start to use chemical pesticides or inputs? Yeah, there's definitely worry. Um, but I'm much more concerned that that there are still, again, 300, 400,000 families that can't eat today because they don't have enough money, can't send their kids to school because they don't have enough money, uh, you know, don't get to eat tomorrow because somebody got sick and they have to pay a doctor's bill. So to me, the first and foremost problem is we need to get all the smaller farmers out of abject poverty and then make sure that they're using you know, organic fertilizers and, and things that don't um, ruin their health while they're farming to make more money. Right. So prioritization, I, I don't put sustainable farming ahead of uh, poverty or hunger. And, and to go back to the sort of more macro question I asked before, you know, as a country industrializes and comes out of poverty, it naturally starts producing more greenhouse gas emissions. There's, you know, is there a way to to limit that and, and pull out of poverty as its population is set to double by, by 2050? Or do you believe it's just kind of going to have to go through that arc of industrialization? Western countries are going to have to pull down greenhouse gas emissions, and then we're going to have to work to solve the problem of making it a more sustainable yeah, economy. I will answer the question, but not directly. Um, when we first started, we had a lot of requests that came in that said, the power is unreliable. We want to buy a generator. And my first my first answer was, no, we're not buying generators. They're diesel or gas generators. Um, I said, go get a quote for a solar system. And so turns out that's hard to do. We helped them do it. We found some solar quotes. We did three or four solar installations already. Um, and it turns out in the long run, it's cheaper to put solar in than, than run generators by a lot. Um, but the problem again is when we're talking about a solar installation, we're talking about a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars of of solar as opposed to two generators that would have cost twenty thousand, right? And then a lot of fuel. So they didn't have that kind of money. Uh, so we we raised the money to go do that. Um, and then a few of my investors, uh, they asked, well, what's the carbon offset of that solar versus you know versus the grid energy? Well, it turns out that unlike here in the States or most of Europe or uh, India or China, um, Africa, because they were behind on electrification and still are behind on electrification, didn't install tons of coal plants, that there isn't a large amount of coal on the continent. And so when I looked at, I think the first installation was Kenya, Kenya was like 60, 40 renewables. Uh, if you count hydro is renewables, which I do because I live in Seattle. Um, I, my, my, my region runs 6040 uh, uh, hydro. Um, and uh, in Uganda, it was higher. It was like 80% uh, hydro because that's where the hydro was coming from. Uh, and same thing in Rwanda, I think it was mostly hydro. So they're already running where, where there is an electric grid, which is, uh, I think about 30% of the continent is covered in the grid. Uh, they're already more green. The grids are greener than most places. Mm -hmm. That's the good news. Bad news is, yes, as the as the middle class grows, they'll want more power and they're going to have to do it somehow. Um, and then the best news, I would say, is most of the population lives near the equator. Mm -hmm. um, 
you literally, oh, we put in a solar installation. It blew my mind because, again, I live 47 degrees north. We had to tilt the solar array, not at the sun. We had to tilt it so that when the rains hit, it cleaned the solar panels. We had to tilt it away from the sun so that they would not be flat to the, because we were, yeah, this solar installation was at uh, one degree south. Wow. Um, so normally that would be angled one degree north, but that's not enough for the rain to fall. Hmm. Uh, so uh, uh, my guess is solar's already cheapest everywhere. We'll just see a lot more solar and batteries. Hmm. Um, and then in terms of the long, your bigger question of how does the, how does the whole continent, you know, electrify and, and whatnot? Well, A, we're seeing things like the giant dam in Ethiopia that will power Ethiopia um, and probably the neighboring countries by the time it's done. It's, it's like the sizes of three, the size of three gorges dam. There'll be a few more of those. Congo will put in some more of those. Um, but I think in terms of uh, utility scale, we'll just see a lot more solar mm -hmm. um, as people need it. The grids are incredible. Most countries, they're incredibly unreliable. Like yeah. it, it, it makes it really hard to build a business that has machinery in any form because you show up for work and the power may or may not be running today. It's not on a schedule. Yeah. And so if you live in that kind of environment, yeah, you just you want something as reliable as solar, which is there every day. Sure. Uh, and, and a little bit of batteries to get you through a, a cloudy day or a cloudy moment or the morning or the evening. So to extrapolate this outward a little bit more, um, have you are you familiar with the project The Green Belt in Africa that's focused yeah. on reducing the desert desertification um, in the region? And what is your perspective on that and 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 how we can create a more regenerative ecologies within Africa, even though you yeah. might not be working directly in that space? No, I am actually. Um, okay. So I have one more project I'm doing. Okay. It came out of Fledge. Uh, back in 2018, there was a big NGO out of Washington, D.C. called the World Resources Institute. Uh, and they, I got introduced to them. Uh, one of the things they do is restorative, uh, restorative land use around the world. One of their biggest projects is the AFR 100 project in Africa. Uh, it's with 35 countries, plus or minus a few. Uh, and those countries have pledged to restore 100 million hectares of land. Mm -hmm. So big project. Mm -hmm. uh, 2018, as part of that project, we created the Land Accelerator. It is a business accelerator focused on for-profit companies in Africa that restore land. Mm -hmm. uh, we've, we're, we're just about done with cohort five in Africa. There's some more programs around the world uh, that spun out of that, that that I don't teach at, but I still teach the Africa program. Uh, and related to that uh, is the Terra Fund, which is both granting to nonprofits and investing in for-profit companies that restore land in Africa as well. It's the AFR 100 Terra Fund for Landscapes, I think is the whole name. Um, so last year, we were able to deploy $3 million to 20 companies. This year, we're in the midst of picking some more companies to deploy about the same amount of money, the specific number TBD. Uh, and the project as a whole had uh, $40 million uh, donated last year and this year, plus uh, $100 million announced in April that's not yet deployed. Uh, so a large amount of money is uh, going into Africa to specifically to restore land. Uh, and um, because this is grant money from philanthropists, it's being uh, the, the investment side of this is managed by my nonprofit. 
as a partner with WRI. Uh, the grants are going through a group called One Tree Planted. Mm -hmm. If you haven't interviewed them, you should talk to them. Okay. Uh, World Resources Institute is running the project, and my nonprofit's called Realize Impact. We're doing the investments. So we will have a portfolio of 40-ish companies this year that specifically do land restoration. So most of those companies overlap Africa Eats because most of them are growing trees for food. Hmm. So out of the 20 companies from last year that I can speak to, um, we had two companies that were growing bamboo. So that's not trees, but uh, uh, woody, woody, Woody uh, biomass above ground, things that we can count as carbon, carbon above ground. So bamboo was counted. Um, we had one company that does uh, clean burning cook stoves that was also planting trees. Two companies that were uh, gathering the sap from acacia trees. If you think of Africa and you think of those the trees yeah. with the big canopies, those are acacia trees. And you eat the sap every day. Uh, the sap is called gum Arabic. Mm -hmm. um, those grow in the desert areas, and the people who live there are generally nomadic herders. And this is one way they can actually make a cash income as they collect the, the sap off the trees and sell them to uh, aggregators. And we invested in two, one in Sudan and, and one in Kenya. But then the rest of the companies um, aggregate um, seedlings on smallholder farmers, uh, smallholder farmers' land where the seedlings are cashews, macadamias, mangoes, avocados, and other fruits and fruits and nuts. And so this is a way to get, I think in the for-profit side, total number of seedlings that we funded was on the order of 5 million. So $3 million paid for about 5 million uh, seedlings between bamboo and trees in the ground where we expect 85% of them to survive um, because there's a business model around it. Uh, and in most cases, growing food that then feeds people Fantastic. and distribute it out to not as a big giant, not as 20 big, huge um, uh, uh, plantations, sure. but literally out to, I don't have the number in front of me, but probably 20,000 farmers or, or 50,000 farmers. Incredible. And is the land fund, I know you have a plan, um, a la Berkshire Hathaway, to take Africa Eats public, I believe, on the London Stock Exchange. Will the land fund be included in that? Or because uh, I have a I have an unannounced plan that I will not I will not disclose here, but I have a real okay. I have a related plan to do something similar around restorative ag. Fantastic. I, I hope that we can touch base in, in a couple of years um, and, and be able you to You can talk check about in that. with me at the end of the year. I should be able to talk about it. Well, I hope I'd love to be able to invest in that. So as we wrap up here, um, across, I mean, kind of already went through your personal guiding philosophy. It, you're quite deep into your career now. You've had a lot of success. What are some of the things that you've learned for young entrepreneurs, especially ones that are looking to do good in the regenerative agriculture um, or climate change space? All right. So I spent 20 years of my career as a techie. I was a software entrepreneur. I built software companies. Uh, the advice I got and the advice I gave over the 20 years was, look, if you're going to be an entrepreneur and you're going to start something, odds are you're going to fail. Just, you know, honest, honest odds, uh, you're likely going to fail. So you might as well do something that's big. Mm. Because big or small, they're both going to take up all your time. And if the big one succeeds, you'll hit it big. 
when I switched over to working in impact in 2011, I adjusted that. Okay. So if you're an entrepreneur and you're going to do something, you're likely to fail, but you might as well do the thing that's going to have the biggest impact in the world. Because if you fail, oh, well, you can try again. But if you succeed, then you've had the biggest impact as possible. Um, and no matter what scale you do, no matter where in the world you pick, no matter you know what SDG you like or, or however you want to talk about these things, uh, your endeavor will take up all your time. Startups take every, every minute you want to give to them. And they ask for all, all the minutes you have and more. So you might as well pick one that's incredibly ambitious. Great advice. Um, and my last question, and this is one I ask of everyone, the regenerative industry is an emerging one. And there's a lot of debate right now about what that looks like from large food companies to small agroforestry projects. Do you have a definition for what regeneration looks like either within agricultural systems or within communities? No. Um, my general philosophy in all things, especially Africa, but all, all things entrepreneur is bottom up beats top down always. As an investor, I have the advantage of being able to see as many startups as I want per year. In, a, in any given year, it's generally a few thousand, right? It, it used to be like 10,000. Now it's maybe down to five or 6,000. But in viewing these uh, these thousands of opportunities, I get to see patterns. I get to see you know, the rare novelty of an idea. And so I don't have to come up with the innovations and I don't have to come up with the theory on how do we get where we're going. I just have to keep raising money so I can invest in the in these promising entrepreneurs who are overlooked because they're off in a corner doing something that's not the next app, that's innovative, impactful and whatnot. Uh, and so I'm just letting letting the letting you know, following along in the stream and looking for interesting um, flowers along the way. Have you seen a lot of flowers that are pointing towards regeneration? I mean, the land fund would indicate perhaps. Oh, Terra fund. We, um, we only had something like uh, 1200 applications to look at this year and uh, 1350 for the land accelerator Africa this year. That was down a little bit from last year. And yeah, there's always a, a handful of gems when you look through a pile that big that just, yeah, yeah. somebody always surprises you with something new. Okay. My final question. Where did you get your name? Oh, Looney. Looney is short for Lunar Mo Biscuit. <laughs> okay. Uh, Lunar Mo Biscuit is a nickname from the 80s before all your listeners were alive. <laughs> it got shortened to Looney a long time ago. Well, Thank you for that. And, and thank you for your time today and, and for all the work that you're doing in the world. It, it's really inspiring. Um, and I will link all of your work in the show notes and, and just really grateful for the time today. Yeah, thanks for letting me tell my story. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you liked what you heard, take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show. And if you want to learn more about how to get involved with The Circle, visit us at our website or on social media. We're always looking for like-minded people to connect with.